everybody needs some kind of motivation. Some of you are getting ready to go to back to school tomorrow, and some of you have perhaps gotten your report cards or will be getting them. And your mother and your daddy are going to look at you and say, Son, daughter, these grades have got to improve. If you don't improve the grades, no more video games for the next six weeks. Or if these grades improve, you're going to be able to enjoy some good things in your future. If you're getting a little older in life, and maybe you're sitting around and you're looking at some folks who are just a little bit older than you are, and you see that they are going through a difficult time financially, and you say, you know what, I believe I'm going to be a little bit more motivated to try to save a little bit more to prepare for my future. Or it may be that you are a person who's looking at someone and you see their plight in life and you say, I believe I'm going to be more motivated to help somebody because I really care about them. We need motivation, and we need motivation spiritually as well. In fact, I'd suggest to you that one of the greatest motivators in the spiritual realm is eternity. As you and I think about the future of where you and I will be when this life is over, if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that you sorrow not as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord are, shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And then you can go ahead and add verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What motivation! As a person looks in life and they say, the future has a lot to hold if I am prepared for it. Paul himself, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 said, that what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. I want you to drop down to verse 10 and 11. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, Paul's philosophy was that I am motivated more to serve God because I want to be a part of the good resurrection of the dead. In Romans chapter 6, Paul has just presented that if you and I 
pattern ourselves after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by our dying to our sins, being buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. He says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, in all three of those passages that I have just made reference to, there's a key theme, and that is the resurrection of the dead. And if there's one great passage in the Bible that is such a motivator, it's 1 Corinthians 15. And the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, in my judgment, is the crown, if you will, on top of such a wonderful chapter as we talk about the resurrection of the dead being a great motivator for us. But what I want us to do this morning is to look at it from three different perspectives. This is going to be an expository lesson from 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. The first is to talk about the people. Who are we? Does that make any difference in our motivation to serve God? I believe it does. Number two, there will be a prescription given, if you will. These are the orders of what you need to do. And then finally, the payoff. The benefit that is derived from being motivated to serve God. Let's look, if you will, beginning with the people. Very first word of 1 Corinthians 15, 58. You're going to have this verse memorized by the time this lesson's over. Therefore, that means that everything else that has been written in verse 1 through 57 of chapter 15 is all about providing the evidence of the conclusion that Paul wants us to draw. Whenever you see that key word, therefore, it tells you, look back. See what this is leading up to. It's almost like when you see the slide go on the screen that says conclusion, it tells you that everything else that I've said has been to bring us to this point in time. So he says, therefore, beloved brethren, Paul wants them to understand his motivation toward them, and in return to understand how much they are loved. I would suggest to you that when you and I read the Bible sometimes, I know I do, that as I read through sometimes words just don't stick. But when you force yourself to go word by word, sometimes words just pop out at you. Like the word beloved. I want you to think with me for just a moment or two about Jesus and how God loved him. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 17, when Jesus was baptized and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When you go to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5, And Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter, James, and John are there. And they wanted to build three tabernacles, three booths for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But there was a voice that came from heaven and said, This is my 
beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Could you think of anyone whom the father would love more than Jesus the Christ? But you see, as you go through the Bible, it's not just Jesus that God loves. God loves all of his saints. In Romans 1 and verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace and to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all saints are beloved of God. It reminds you of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it's not just God that loves you. Paul, when he wrote this letter, wrote to them just like he did the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved, my longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Twice in one verse. He tells them, I really love you. I care about you. Now here is the emphasis, I think, for us. We are Paul's beloved brethren, just like the Corinthians were. And when you think about us as a people, we are brethren. We're part of this great family of God. If you go to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11... The writer there is trying to get us to understand how Jesus identifies with us, how we are like him and he like us. He said, for both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus looks at us as brethren. Now, folks, I don't know if you really fully appreciate that or not. But he shared the same nature as us and provides for us an example of how to live, an encouragement, a motivation, if you will. And 1 John 3 and verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Being children means we are brethren. Just like in a physical family, you have a brother, you have a sister. We are in the Lord a family of God. Now here's the bottom line, if you will, as far as the motivation is concerned. I know there are at times when we feel like we're all alone in this world. We feel as if nobody really cares about us individually. No one cares that we are striving to do what's right. Many of us may feel as if we are unnoticed. Nobody would miss me if I were gone. When you go to Psalms chapter 142 verse 4, David puts it like this. And it does sound really sad. Look to my right hand and see. For there's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. 
Nobody cares. Oh, but that's wrong. That's wrong. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, Casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. I'd suggest to you that the very first motivation in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, is people. In fact, not just any people, but people who are truly loved and people who are loved like family. Some of you will sit up all night with a sick child, not because you want to sit up with someone sick, but because you love that child. Some of you will do great things for people in your family because you love them. That's your motivator. Number two, the prescription. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There are two prescriptions given in this part of the verse. They are in present tense, which means there's something you practice, you keep on doing. It's not once and done. It's a pattern or a habit of life. They're also in the imperative That means that they're commands, not suggestions. Like, for instance, Acts 2, verse 38. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That is a command. These are not suggestions to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding. These are commands to be obeyed. But now... I've got to understand what he's discussing. What does it mean when you say steadfast and immovable? Well, the first thing I would suggest to you, in its context, he's talking about the gospel that does not change. It's static. You don't have it changing from this generation to that generation or from one group of people to another group of people. When you start changing it, you have something else. I want to take you to two portions of Scripture to make this point. Let's go first of all to 1 Corinthians 15. Back up to the first four verses of this chapter and notice how Paul will present it to them. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Here's what he's saying. This is the gospel that I preached to you. This is the gospel you received. This is the gospel you still stand in, unless you've given up on it, in which case you won't be saved. Then he goes back and reaffirms, this is what I received. 
When I preached to you, it was from the Scriptures. The Gospel does not change. When you say be steadfast, be immovable, that means you remain in and keep participating in and believing and practicing what's in the Gospel. Let me give you a second passage of Scripture. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what you have, we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel than what you have received, let him be accursed. Notice again, same pattern as 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. You have the same gospel being preached, the same gospel being received. And then he warns against people who would believe or teach something different. Colossians 1 and verse 23, it's stated very simple. Indeed, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister. Folks, that's pretty simple. You have a revealed gospel message, and it does not change. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle, whether someone came to you and preached that message to you and you heard it, or whether you received a letter from us, it's that same gospel. Now someone says, why are you belaboring that point? I'll tell you why I'm belaboring that point. Is the world that we're living in today, people are not doing that. Just a few weeks ago, I preached on what was occurring in Franklin, Tennessee, where the congregation there has now let a young lady get up in the pulpit, and she's preaching. And yet, when we go to 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 12, I desire, therefore, that the men pray. I do not permit a woman to teach nor have authority over a man. Those passages are just swept out the door, and you have a different gospel. Some of you may have read in the Tennessee in a couple of weeks ago that a congregation in Nashville has said, we're going to bring in instruments of music, and we're going to have instrumental services. We know we're changing Folks, the gospel does not change. And if you and I will be faithful and we will be saved, it will be because we hold on to the gospel as revealed in the scriptures. But I suggest there's more to it than just that. Not only do we not change the gospel, we don't change our convictions either. For instance, in Ephesians 4 verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Children, you can tell them almost anything 
with a straight face and they'll say, really? And you have to realize that when you grow up as an adult, your views don't change as much as they used to. You know why? Because you learn the truth. You now have some convictions. And I think he's talking about here of people having convictions, not vacillating back and forth. Colossians 2, 5, Paul said, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. I'm looking at people holding on carefully. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 9, Resist him steadfast in the faith. Talking about resisting the devil. When Satan came to accuse Job before God, God's response in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited him against me to destroy him without cause? God said, you look at Job. Job's a man who won't give up and won't give in. His convictions were true. Job would say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I asked Brother Leonard to lead the song, I Shall Not Be Moved. And there's a reason. Psalms 1, beginning with verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the waters that shall bring forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but he's like the chaff which the wind drives away. You want to be motivated to serve God, be strong, be steadfast. Don't give up on the gospel. Remain loyal and true. But the second part of that prescription is to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now the first obvious question is what is the work of the Lord? How can I be involved in doing that and be abounding in it? Well, when I go to such passages as Acts 13, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, I start learning that whenever you teach someone else God's will, you are involved in the work of the Lord. Acts 13, 2. Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for a work to which I have called them. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Are you not my work in the Lord? Chapter 16 and verse 10, talking about Timothy. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. It's not just those who preach in a pulpit. Some of you have conversations with your friends, your co-workers, and your classmates. And in doing so, you're trying to explain to them, here's what I believe and here's why I believe it. And to use Paul's term, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. 
When you do that, you're doing the work of the Lord. But it's not just that. When you give a cup of cold water in the Lord's name, you're doing the Lord's work. Many of you have prepared meals for those who are bereaved and those who are sick. You are motivated by your love for God and your love for souls. In Ephesians 2 and verse 10, he says that God has prepared us or created us for good works. Titus 2 verse 7, In all things showing yourself a pattern of good works. Titus 3 verse 8, That those who have believed God should be careful to maintain good works. These are good and profitable to men. Chapter 3, verse 14. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. When you and I do things that God gets the credit, then we're doing the work of the Lord. We're serving Him. In Hebrews 10, 24, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. But then he uses that modifying word, always abounding. The word abound is the same family of words for the word abundance. And you think about God, what he does for us. Does God give us just a little bit or does God give us so much? The air we breathe, the world in which we live that has food, it has drink. But most of us are not just blessed with the necessities. Look at yourself. Do you have more than one change of clothes? Most of us have to push stuff aside in our closets to put more stuff in. Do you have enough food to eat? Most of us have enough in our cabinets to be able to feed us at least for a couple of weeks. Do you have not only the necessities of life, but do you have a lot of the luxuries of life? I dare say most of us would have to admit that we do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7 and 9 and verse 8, he's talking about needy people the Macedonians, giving to help other needy people, the brethren in Judea. He says, but as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence, see that you abound in this grace also. Chapter 9 and verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. God has given us enough. God's given us more. Abounding in it. In chapter 1 Thessalonians 3.12 That you may, the Lord may make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as you do. He talks about in chapter 4 verse 1 again that you abound more and more. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, going through verse 7, he presents the Christian graces. He says that these things are yours and abound. We need to be people motivated by obligation. 
We're motivated by love. We're also motivated by obligation because God gives us a job to do. But now I want to talk about the third type of motivation very quickly, and that is the payoff. Motivated by the reward. And I know there's a lot of people today who don't like the terms talking about reward and payoff as if somehow you and I deserve what God has given us. But the truth is the Bible uses those terms itself. You have our labor for reward. 1 Corinthians 3.8, he says, He who plants and he who waters are one, that each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. It depends on what you and I are giving. Matthew 16, verse 27, he'll reward to each according to his works. Hebrews 11, verse 26, talking about Moses, it says, for he looked to the reward. He saw where it was going to lead him to. But here's the issue. Our rewards here perish. They disintegrate. They go away. Paul would compare that in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He says, They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. You see, the resurrection of the dead that's behind all of this, the motivation is one which you and I will be raised to a body which will then be incorruptible that will not fade away. Be steadfast, be immovable, always bounding the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Not in vain. In chapter 15 and verse 10, Paul would put it like this. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. What God has given me wasn't for no profit. I put everything I had into it. You begin with verse 12. And he talks about, what if there were no resurrection of the dead? Why are some saying there is no resurrection of the dead? He said in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And then you drop down to verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. You start seeing that if you give up on the motivation of reward, then everything else loses its significance. Paul would say, Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. Sometimes we need to be reminded to be motivated. Somebody tells us you're motivated by love. You're motivated by obligation. You're motivated by reward. Yes, all of that's found in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Our master wants us to be loyal and strong while also being productive.
and one gets the great reward of a better resurrection. I don't know what else I could say to motivate you this morning than to look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, motivated for our master. If you'll get your songbooks now, we're going to sing this invitation song. I hope that there's somebody here this morning whose heart's tender, whose desire it is to become a New Testament Christian. You may be one of our younger people who've been thinking, I need to obey the gospel. It's now time for me to do so. I understand the difference between right and wrong, and I know I have sins, and I believe in God. Or you may be an older person. You may be one of these people who've sat here for years and heard sermons and say, you know, one of these days I'm going to be baptized. Why not now? Why not now? If you're a Christian needs to come home, why not now? While together we stand and sing.